Hayek nefer market netpet, irten ank shaa ank. Uwek webenti em aket, mechenek taneb em neferuek. Uwek anti. Beautifully, you appear from the horizon of heaven, O living Aten who initiates life. For you are risen from the eastern horizon, and have filled every land with your beauty. For you are fair, great, dazzling, and high over every land, and your rays enclose the land to their limit of all you have made. You are Ray, having reached their limit and subdued them for your beloved son. Although you are far away, your rays are upon the earth. You are in their sight, but your movements are hidden. Hello, and welcome to the History of Egypt podcast, episode 116, Adoring Aten. Today, we begin at last to explore the religion of Akhenaten in depth. We've seen his early developments as a ruler, his bold artistic styles, and his radical movement away from the traditional capital cities towards a new home, Aket Aten, Horizon of Aten, a new city for the king and his god. Now, we can start to delve into Akhenaten's beliefs and how he expressed them in the happy years that he spent at his City of the Sun. In this episode, we begin with the big one, the Great Hymn to Aten, a text of unparalleled importance in understanding the man's ideas and what he did in service to his god. This episode was supported by Claudia, Joseph and Lane, who kindly became early patrons of the podcast back in 2018. Thank you kindly, folks, especially for sticking with me for over a year. You rock. May Arten's rays shine upon you. May the flood of Harpy fill your garden's soil. May the King of Egypt bless your creative efforts. Now then, on with the show. The year was 1356 BCE, regnal year 7 under the majesty of Nefer Keperu Ra Wa Enra, Akhenaten, the king of Upper and Lower Egypt. It was an interesting time to be an Egyptian, especially one with any sort of connection to the royal household and its followers. Those with power were making bold decisions, and for those wanting to get ahead in life, there was only one place to go. Pharaoh's new city, Aket Aten, the horizon of Aten, was growing rapidly. Temples and palaces were rising, and the hills around the city were choked with dust as quarrymen extracted blocks, talatat, for the king's monuments. Along dusty trails, countless labourers and donkeys carried these blocks down to the desert plain of the city. On the banks of the Nile, Aket Aten was expanding. The early years of Aket Aten, modern Amana, were full of potential. The population grew rapidly as wealthy families, members of the court, flocked to the new royal residence. They set up lavish manors with courtyards and boundary walls, the homes of their servants, 
workers, farmers, and craftsmen, sprung up in clusters around those walls, and the homes of the rich became the centres of small improvised villages. Among thousands of non-royal men, women, and children who moved to Arket Aten, perhaps the most famous is a man named Ai. Ai, or Aya, was a prominent courtier, a member of the king's entourage, and an officer in his army. I held the prestigious title of fan-bearer on the right of the king, an indication of close personal access to the ruler and a level of trust above the ordinary servant. I was also the pharaoh's Emira Sesmet Neb and Chemef, the overseer of every horse of his majesty. This role connected I with the chariots and horse teams which Akhenaten rode, and which formed the elite core of Egypt's military forces. The chariots, the horses, were the premier royal technology. I's position in this hierarchy must have been prominent indeed. After arriving in Arket Aten, I quickly gained great status and prestige within the court of the pharaoh, and apart from his titles, which we've already seen, I benefited from this prominence in some very material ways. In the hills east of the city, I was given one of the largest and most splendid tombs, an elaborate space with a huge entrance hall filled with columns. This tomb was never finished, like most of the Amarna tombs, but you can visit it today, and it was already an incredibly impressive work when it was abandoned. The walls of Ai's Amarna tomb convey a variety of wonderful images. We see Akhenaten and Nefertiti worshipping Aten. We also see the royal palace filled with music and bustling with life and activity. We see a celebration as Pharaoh gives gifts to Ai, and friends cluster around to congratulate him, with their chariots parked nearby. Ai and his wife Tia, a wet nurse for Queen Nefertiti, give praises and prayers to the names of the Pharaoh, to the Queen, and to the Aten. And most importantly, we see a series of religious texts which are among the most valuable resources in all of Amarna scholarship. The tomb of Ai at Arket Aten bears several inscriptions of incredible importance. Across dozens of columns, hieroglyphic writings convey a series of prayers and hymns devoted to the king and queen and to the god Aten above all. These written sources are among the only surviving relics of speeches or songs that may have been performed at Arket Aten, as part of the pharaoh's religious movement. As you can imagine, I's tomb decorations provide a splendid window into what exactly was happening at this time. The standout feature of Ai's tomb is a lengthy text which purports to be a song of praise spoken by the pharaoh in honour of his great god. This inscription, called the Great Hymn to Aten, is one of the default texts which historians go to when trying to unravel the theology and mindset of this curious king. As you can imagine, the Great Hymn has been studied, re-studied, picked over and reconstructed by many scholars, each of whom brought their own little twist to the meaning. For this episode, I'm going to use a translation by William J. Murnane from his Texts from the Amarna Period in Egypt. It's not the most beautiful or poetic of renditions, but it's the one that sticks as closely as possible to the ancient grammar and ways of speaking. 
Other translations can be more accessible, which is great, but we're trying to tease out the way Akhenaten and his contemporaries might have spoken about these things. Personally, I like Murnane's translation best, even if it's not the prettiest. With that in mind, it is time to explore the great hymn to the Aten as it is recorded in the tomb of Ai, courtier of the pharaoh and servant in Aket Aten. The hymn begins with a sort of formulaic introduction. We get the names of the god Aten himself in their full version, as well as the names and titles of Akhenaten, king of Egypt, and Nefertiti. We also get the titles of Ai, the tomb owner himself. The introduction is stock standard and goes very simply like this. The fan-bearer at the right hand of the king, the commander of all the horses of his person, the confidant throughout the entire land, the favourite of the good god. The god's father I and his chief wife, the favourite of the good god, the great nurse of the king's chief wife, Nefer-Neferu Aten Nefertiti, may she live forever continually, the king's ornament, Tia. Adoration of Horus Aten, living forever continually, Great living Aten, who is in Jubilee, Lord of all that Aten encircles, Lord of heaven, Lord of earth, Lord of the house of Aten in Aket Aten, and the king of Upper and Lower Egypt, who lives on Ma'at, the lord of the two lands, Nefer Keperura, Wa Enra, the son of Re, who lives on Ma'at, Lord of crowns, Akhenaten, long in his lifetime. Also, the king's chief wife, his beloved, the lady of the two lands, Nefer Neferu Aten, Nefret Eti, may she live, be healthy and youthful everlastingly forever. I set the hymn properly within the reign in which he lived and the context in which the text is recorded. The great hymn to Aten was probably a composition made by Akhenaten, although, as we will see, he may have adapted it from earlier sources and influences. I presents the great hymn as a composition presented by the king, but recorded on the walls of this courtier's tomb. With that in mind, I has to lay out the proper introductions, including the titles and grandiose names of the king, queen, and the god, in order to make it clear that this is a communication he heard from the king himself. To do this is to increase the prestige of I himself, for he is one who is close to the king, close enough to hear the songs which Akhenaten made for the god. From here, we begin the great hymn itself, the adoration of Aten by the king of Upper and Lower Egypt. Here is Akhenaten's song of praise to the god he loved above all. Beautifully you appear from the horizon of heaven, O living Aten who initiates life. For you are risen from the eastern horizon, and have filled every land with your beauty. For you are fair, great, dazzling, and high over every land, and your rays enclose the land to their limit of all you have made. You are Ray, having reached their limit and subdued them for your beloved son. Although you are far away, your rays are upon the earth, and you are perceived. When your movements vanish, and you set in the western horizon, the land is in darkness, in the manner of death. People, they lie in bedchambers, heads covered up, and one eye does not see its fellow. 
All of their property is robbed, although it is under their heads, and they do not realize it. Every lion is out of its den, all creeping things bite. Darkness gathers, the land is silent. The one who made them is set in his horizon. But the land grows bright when you are risen from the horizon. Shining in the Aten in the daytime, you push back the darkness and give forth your rays. The two lands are in a festival of light. Awake and standing on legs, for you have lifted them up. Their limbs are cleansed and wearing clothes. Their arms are in adoration at your appearing. The whole land, they do their work. All flocks are content with their pasturage. Trees and grasses flourish. Birds are flowing from their nests, their wings adoring your car. All small cattle prance upon their legs. All that fly up and alight, they live when you rise for them. Ships go downstream and upstream as well, every road being open at your appearance. Fish upon the river leap up in front of you, and your rays are within the great green. This is the opening section of the great hymn, and it explores a couple of themes that I'll summarize very quickly just to make everything clear. Akhenaten begins by praising the great god and rejoicing in the light which comes forth when Aten rises above the eastern horizon at dawn. The world in general, its people and its animals, come to life when the sun god is visible in the sky, and the radiance or light of Aten touches everything, bringing forth energy and vitality. However, when the sun sets below the western horizon and night descends upon the earth, the world seems to be in a state of torpor or death. And Akhenaten is very concerned with this absence, with what happens to the land when the Aten is not visible. It seems to be an endless cycle of life and death, which repeats every day, with the morning being the birth and the evening being the death. The king is building on ideas that we have seen repeatedly in earlier Egyptian theology. However, here he treats it with a beautiful sense of metaphor and lively language which brings to life his concepts in some truly beautiful ways. From this opening section, we can now move on to the second part. Akhenaten continues his praise of the god, exploring the vitality which sunlight brings to the earth, and then he begins to explore the concept of the sun god as a universal deity, one with mastery over all of the earth. Quote, O you who brings into being the fetuses within women, who makes fluid in people, who gives life to the sun in his mother's womb and calms him by stopping his tears, nurse in the womb who gives breath to animate all that he makes, when it descends from the womb to breathe on the day it is born, you open the child's mouth completely and make what he needs. When the chick is in the egg, speaking in the shell, you give him breath within and cause him to live. And when you have made his appointed time so that he may break himself out of the egg, he comes forth to speak at his appointed time and goes on his two legs when he emerges. How manifold it is what you have made, although mysterious to the face of humanity. O soul God, without another beside him, you create the earth according to your wish, being alone. People 
all large and small animals, all things which are on earth, which go on legs, which rise up and fly by means of their wings, the foreign countries of Charu and Cush and the land of Egypt. You set every man in his place, you make their requirements, each one having his food and the reckoning of his lifetime. Their tongues differ in speech, their natures likewise. Their skins are distinct, for you have made foreigners to be distinct. In the second section of the hymn, Pharaoh sings of the god's ability to enter the human body and quicken life, sowing the seed in the womb so that new children may begin to grow. He does this both literally and through metaphor, exploring the idea of the chick in the egg and how Aten brings life and allows it to walk when it emerges. The king also begins to explore the idea of the Aten as a supreme deity beside whom there is no equal. To Akhenaten, Aten is unique, or soul. This is the Egyptian word wa. For some, this suggests that Akhenaten viewed Aten as the only god, but that's a concept which requires a lot of exploration, so we'll leave that for the second half of this episode. For now, it's enough to understand that within the great hymn, Aten is presented as the supreme deity, one above all others, and his dominion over the earth is total. Aten is a universal god, one who has separated the cultures out. Syrians and Nubians are distinct from Egypt because of Aten's orderly commands. With this in mind, the sun god shines above every land and every people. For Akhenaten, Aten is a deity that rules over all. We now come to the third section of the great hymn in which the pharaoh begins to explore the celestial, heavenly power of the god, and the various mechanisms by which Aten brings life to the people, to the earth, and to the afterlife. Quote, You make the inundation from the underworld, and you bring it to the place you wish in order to cause the subjects to live. Inasmuch as you made them for yourself, their lord entirely, who is wearied with them, the lord of every land who rises for them, the orb of the daytime whose awesomeness is great. As for all distant countries, you make their life. You have granted an inundation in heaven that it might come down for them in rain, and make torrents upon the mountains, like the great green ocean, to soak the fields in their locations. How functional are your plans, O Lord of continuity! An inundation in heaven which is for the foreigners and for all foreign flocks which go on legs, and an inundation when it comes from the underworld for the tilled land, Egypt. While your rays nurse every field, when you rise, they live and flourish for you. You make the seasons in order to develop all that you make, the growing season to cool them, and the heat so that they might feel you. Aten's power covers the whole earth, and his deeds bring life to all. Crucially, Aten creates the flood, or harpy, which extends throughout the Nile Valley and brings life to the land of Egypt. This is a powerful image, which gives the god a role in the hereafter, and incorporates a potent symbol, one that Akhenaten seems to have been fond of invoking. In short, Aten is the ultimate source of fertility, 
and this manifests in some interesting ways which we will explore in the commentary chapter. For now, it's time to move to the last section. In the final stanzas of his poem, Akhenaten continues to explore the concept of Aten as a universal god, and he hammers home the unique relationship between the sun god in the sky and the pharaoh on earth. Quote, You made heaven far away just so that you could rise in it to see all that you make, being unique and risen in your aspects of being as living Aten, manifest and shining, far away and yet near. You make millions of developments from yourself, you who are a oneness. Cities, towns, fields, the path of the river. Every eye observes you in relation to them, for you are Aten of the daytime above the earth. You have travelled just so that everybody might exist. You create their faces so that you might not see yourself as the only thing which you made. You are in my heart, and there is none who knows you except for your son, Neferkeperure Wa Enre. For you make him aware of your plans and your strength. The land develops through your action, just as you made the people. When you have risen, they live, but when you set, they die. You are lifetime in your very limbs, and one lives by means of you. Until you set, all eyes are upon your beauty, but all work is put aside when you set on the western horizon. You who rise and make all creation grow for the king, as for everyone who hurries about on foot since you founded the land. You raise them up for your son, the one who issued from your limbs, the king of Upper and Lower Egypt, the one who lives on Ma'at, the lord of the two lands, Neferkeperure Wa Enre, the son of Re, who lives on Ma'at, lord of crowns, Akhenaten, long in his lifetime. And the king's chief wife, his beloved, the lady of the two lands, Nefer Neferu Aten Nefertiti, may she live and be young forever continually. Thus concludes the great hymn to the Aten, carved in the tomb of Ai at Arket Aten, inscribed on the walls of a non-royal burial, and yet supposedly composed by the pharaoh himself, the great hymn is most intriguing. In many ways, it is a unique text, a celebration of life that perhaps comes from a pharaoh directly. Whether it was actually written by Akhenaten or not is impossible to know for sure. But what we can know is that the great hymn is a beautiful expression of religious thought at a most unusual time in Egyptian history. The great hymn is full of references and allusions to other theological concepts, and in chapter 2 of this episode we will explore those in a bit more detail. For now, it's enough to recognise that the great hymn is a surprisingly beautiful piece of work, and this becomes very clear when it is read in ancient Egyptian. In chapter 2, I'm going to do my commentary on some of the references and concepts which Akhenaten puts forth. Then, in chapter 3, I have a special treat. I've put together a transliteration and translation of the great hymn, and I will read it to you in its original Egyptian, alongside an English translation. 
Akhenaten's great hymn to the sun god, carved in the tomb of Ai, is a most important piece of Egyptological literature. And as we will see in a moment, it is one that is rich in poetic beauty and metaphorical detail. Join me in a moment for chapter 2, in which we discuss the greater depths of this wonderful poem. See you in a moment! Chapter 2 The great hymn to the Aten, supposedly composed by Akhenaten, is a complicated and mysterious piece of literature. Of course, historians have attacked it from many different angles, trying to unravel exactly what Akhenaten was saying about his particular god. The theology is complicated, and the references or mythological allusions, although not obvious, are still there and can be teased out if you're dedicated enough. I want to provide an overview of some of the more prominent concepts that come forth in Akhenaten's beautiful text. To do this, I'm going to draw on the work of a few key Egyptologists who have studied this hymn and Akhenaten's theology most comprehensively. As you can imagine, the religion, quote-unquote, of Akhenaten is a big topic, and the great hymn is really just one small part of that. This is going to take a while to explore, multiple episodes, before we get a true handle on what exactly Akhenaten was doing and why he was doing it. With that in mind, let's explore some of the references within the great hymn and what they say about Akhenaten as a man and how he perceived his god. Religions are created by people, but many of them claim to be directly ordained or inspired by the word of the god itself. Texts may tell stories of the great deities, their deeds on earth and in heaven, and preachers may speak of themselves as conduits for what the being itself is saying. And most of these religions tend to crystallize some essential rules or tenets, structures for how to conceive the god, how to worship it, and how to behave on earth in a way that is pleasing to the deity. Akhenaten shared some of these traits with the various preachers of divinity. He claimed direct descent from his god, and indicated that he alone had the power of knowing what it was the being desired. Akhenaten expressed these ideas in different ways, some quite clear, some rather unusual, and he certainly developed a stable concept of what the Aten was, what it represented, and what the god did on earth. That being said, Akhenaten never gave his people a Word of God style proclamation. There were no commandments, nor any sense that the religion of Aten had rules for daily living. The god itself was silent, never communicating directly with the people of the world. Aten spoke to Akhenaten, and it was up to the pharaoh whether he would share what the god had said. In other words, we never see Aten speaking in the texts or artistic imagery, which is a little bit strange. The Egyptians revealed plenty of ideas about what their gods said and did, 
and even in the 18th dynasty, different kings were promoting ideas about what certain deities had said about the ruler and about the cosmos. Tales by Hatshepsut and Amunhotep III, for instance, are full of the speeches of the gods. Beings like Amun-Re, Thoth, Hathor, and Horus would converse with one another, and the Ennead, the divine council, would reveal its decisions on events to come, and the great lords of creation were said to speak directly with each other about their desires. These speeches appear on the walls of temples, particularly regarding the conception and birth of kings, and the gods' utterances were, in theory, visible to all who could see the hieroglyphs and read them. As far as we can tell from the surviving evidence, Akhenaten abandoned that kind of storytelling. He didn't want people to hear the words of Aten as if they were coming from the god itself. Instead, Akhenaten was the mouthpiece. He talked about Aten, and only he spoke directly with the god. No one else could hear Aten's words, only the king, and Pharaoh was not sharing them often. Were it not for texts like the Great Hymn or the Boundary Stelae of Amana, we would be quite ignorant of what Akhenaten actually said about his god. Fortunately, these remarkable texts give us a good sense of the pharaoh's speeches, his revelations, concerning the nature of the deity and Aten's role on earth. With loyal courtiers like I around him, we get shadowy glimpses of what the king himself may have said about these ideas. The Great Hymn is the most famous example, but there are others, and we will explore these in future episodes. Akhenaten did talk about Aten. In life, he would have spoken at great length about the god, whether you wanted him to or not. Akhenaten shared his conception of the god frequently and verbosely, and he shared these ideas with his favoured courtiers, some of whom made reference to that fact in their own biographies. Tombs at Amana, carved by the high officials, speak of the teachings, or sabayut, which Akhenaten shared, and these teachings seem to have been proclamations or speeches about the sun god as a being worthy of praise. The problem is, the courtiers never record exactly what the king said. They don't repeat his words as far as we can tell. So there is a gap. We know that Akhenaten shared his ideas, but we can't be certain what his words actually were. So we have to rely on the great hymn and the boundary stelae and a few other fragments to get some basic ideas of what the king thought and what he revealed. These teachings, the speeches and songs which Pharaoh may have shared, are complicated, and historians have offered many interpretations of them over the years. Going down this particular rabbit hole was interesting, to say the least. Sometimes I found interpretations that were almost inspiring, others were so complicated and wrapped up in metaphysical jargon that the whole thread of reality seemed to crumble around me. By the time I emerged into the light, all that was left were some basic principles which we might summarize as follows. There are two concepts which are fundamental to the worship of Aten. The first and most prominent is the idea of light, light as a creative, life-bringing force. In Akhenaten's art, the light of the sun, called Shu, radiates out from the sun disk, and when the god rises over the eastern horizon, he fills the earth with his Shu, 
a force that illuminates, enlightens, and warms the faces of all who see it. Light, Shu, is the core of Aten's appearance on Earth. It was Eric Hornung, an Egyptologist of enduring reputation, who first explored the light of Aten in a comprehensive manner. In one of his shorter books, Hornung examined the various remnants of Artenism and came to the conclusion that Aten, first and foremost, was a god of light. In fact, Hornung even suggested that Aten, quote, was actually not the sun disk, but rather the light that is in the sun, and which, radiating from it, calls the world to life and keeps it alive, end quote. Akhenaten definitely focused on the light or shoe of Aten a great deal. We see it in the great hymn, where light is referenced frequently, and we have seen it in the visual art of this time. When Akhenaten devised his new iconography, he did reshape Aten into its most basic components, a disc with rays shining down on the royal family. Each ray or beam of light terminated in a hand which touched the god's beloved family, Akhenaten, Nefertiti, and their daughters. In theory, these simple components conveyed everything that a viewer needed to know about the basics of Aten as a god. The sun and humanity were connected by the beams of light or shu which touched him, like the hands of God itself. In other words, the disc, Aten, the pharaoh, Akhenaten, and the light, Shu, went together, hand in hand. The three forms were united, shining splendidly in their radiance, and thanks to their union, the world was illuminated with light. The second fundamental concept is life, living itself. The god is not simply Aten, he is the living Aten, or Aten who lives, ank Irten. The god is master over the power of creation, and one of the central themes in the great hymn is how Aten makes life come forth on earth. For Akhenaten, the sun was the ultimate source of life in this world. For one scholar, Jan Asman, the concept of Aten should really be explained like this. Quote, the god of Amana is called life. He is the sun as the source and condition of life. End quote. Now this idea goes quite deep into Egyptian theology, and Asman brings in all kinds of mythological background. The ideas get complicated quickly, but we can summarize them as follows. The idea of Aten as an avatar of life is a powerful one. It has two components. On the one hand, the god is life in a fundamental sense. He is the source of growth, the one who creates it. On the other hand, Aten also works through intermediaries. Instead of appearing on earth in a human or animal body, like older gods, he works through his son, Akhenaten, who makes Egypt flourish on Aten's behalf. In other words, Aten is the source of life, and he creates the conditions which make life possible. But in our world, Akhenaten is the one who makes Aten's creation happen. It wasn't hard for the Egyptians to figure out the basic connection between sunlight, growth, and life in general. Flowers, plants, and animals respond to the sun's warmth, and they seem to awaken each morning as the sunlight appears. As far as the Egyptians were aware, everything which lived on earth relied in some way on the sun. And although Akhenaten expresses it quite beautifully, his focus on Aten as a life-giving god is conventional in terms of Egyptian religion. 
The relationship between Aten and his children, Akhenaten and Nefertiti, is one steeped in religious symbolism. The most important part is the way the three beings form a sort of divine trinity, one that has parallels in the older mythology of great gods. Back in the Middle Kingdom, the creator deity, Atum, the one who is complete, had supposedly passed authority over the earth to his two children. Those children, a boy and a girl, were Shu, the light of heaven and the air, and Tefnut, the moisture and the one who supported the earth. Shu and Tefnut were the children of Atum, and they acted on his behalf in this world. For Jan Asman, the relationship between these gods and what Akhenaten was doing is quite pivotal. Speaking about Atum, Shu, and Tefnut, Asman said, quote, Atum was the creator of the world, and life according to this theology, but the task of life-giving fell to his two children, to Shu and Tefnut. End quote. In other words, Aten, the creator, was the source of life, but this life was sent out into the world by the god and the goddess, the king and queen of Egypt, Shu, Akhenaten, and Tefnut, Nefertiti. And we do see this in some of the texts from the period. Among various references, Akhenaten is called the Nile of Egypt, and the mother who bears all, he who nourishes millions with his food. Pharaoh was the dispenser of all sustenance, and in Akhenaten's theology, it was his personal power that made Egypt grow. This may sound convoluted, but the essence is quite simple. In heaven, Aten was the radiant source which made life possible. But on earth, that creative power passed through the gods' beloved children. Akhenaten and his wife Nefertiti were Aten's avatars on earth, and through them, Egypt flourished and the crops grew lush. Everyone, animal and human, lived on the sustenance which the king and queen made possible. So light and life are two essential parts of worshipping Aten within this time period. We also have the concept of universalism, something which Akhenaten really emphasised in the great hymn. The concept of the sun god as a deity who ruled over the entire world, not just Egypt, is one that was growing quite popular during the 18th dynasty. Akhenaten took this pre-existing idea and sort of exaggerated it, making Aten very specifically a god who organised the world according to his desire, separated the cultures, and even distinguished different tribes from one another. Across Egypt and the Near East at this time, the sun god as a concept was becoming particularly prominent. The Hittites were even beginning to incorporate this particular cult into their own royal lineage. That's not to say that Near Easterners were using the Egyptian sun god, merely that their own concepts of the sun god were very similar across a broad range of space and time. The idea of the sun god whether it's Aten, Ra, or a Near Eastern equivalent, being a sort of universal deity, is something that was trickling into a general cultural consciousness at the time. And, as we'll see, this was an idea that really took root and spread, eventually becoming such a prominent part of Near Eastern religions that it survived right into the Roman period. In this sense, 
Akhenaten was definitely picking up on a cultural zeitgeist of the time, the idea of the solar deity as one that transcended national or cultural boundaries. Akhenaten did not invent this concept. He explains it very beautifully in the great hymn, but it's not his own idea. Perhaps he believed it was, but religious texts composed before Akhenaten reveal that solar worship had become a prominent part of the national discourse, well entrenched by the time this king was born. We're going to explore some of these texts in the next episode, where we delve into some of the roots of Akhenaten's particular theology. For now, let's move on to other interpretations of Atenism and what it represents. Aten lived far away, he was unreachable to ordinary mortals, and his shining splendour touched the earth from a distant place, one that was largely unknown to most folk. As a result, many aspects of Aten were hidden from view, and knowledge about the god was quite restricted. Once again, this is not unique to Aten. Many Egyptian gods were hidden or secretive in various ways. But... The pharaoh's speeches, specifically the great hymn, do give a sense that Akhenaten was not big on sharing his beloved solar god. Aten and humanity did not interact in a direct sense. Most people did not worship him except in gratitude for his life or giving honour to his names. If there was a connection between the Aten and the people, it was a connection that came through the king, through Akhenaten himself. The worship of Aten had different mechanics from what came before. There were no statues, no shrines per se, and the god's body, his form, was simultaneously visible to everyone, but also highly secretive. This manifested in a strange dynamic. On the one hand, everyone could see Aten in the sky, and his light shone on the entire world. On the other, only Pharaoh spoke to the god, and the common people were shut out of the relationship. Before Akhenaten, a god's statue was the focus of its cult. It was the main image which people could approach, talk to, and behold. The god itself was elsewhere in nature, but the statue could still act as the conduit for worship, and those statues could interact with people. During festivals, the god's image would go out on parades, travelling through the town and being seen by all the people who came to celebrate. With Artenism, it's different. There was no statue for the sun god, and the only processions were those which the pharaoh performed. In this sense, the religious parades which were formerly done by a god's statue were now done by Akhenaten. Jan Asman, once again, summarises this concept quite nicely. Quote, Akhenaten was the god who set out on procession. He was the one who performed signs and wonders, and he was the one who intervened in the destiny of the individual, holding life and death in his hands. End quote. Essentially, it was really Akhenaten whom people worshipped. The Aten high above was just for the king and his royal family. When people needed blessings, they were supposed to turn to the pharaoh. Akhenaten would make the world flourish. People needed to ask him for the things that they traditionally requested of the gods. Akhenaten was not big on sharing. When he made offerings to the Aten, he described himself as, quote, 
the one who makes offerings, myself, to the Aten, my father, in the house of Aten, in Aket Aten. End quote. And he would say to the god things like, There is no other one that knows thee apart from thy son. And when it came to the rituals of the temple, the king didn't even want to share those basic practices. On one of the boundary stelae carved around the perimeter of the city, Akhenaten made a note for occasions when he might be away from the town. On those occasions, the king stipulated, quote, Now, make the stelae for the offerings which I dedicate to the Aten, my father. I myself am the one who should make offerings. Offerings are not to be made when I am in any other city or in any other town. End quote. It seems that Akhenaten was jealous of his relationship with Aten. He did not want to share, and he didn't permit others to make offerings or perform the rituals when he was absent from the great city. It is a very closed, protected relationship. Only the pharaoh and his beloved family had direct access to the god, and Akhenaten guarded this bond very carefully. At least, that was the theory. In practice, it was probably quite hard to enforce that kind of exclusivity. And in later episodes, we will see how the people of Amarna actually handled the new religion. Some of them observed it strictly, others were freer with their beliefs. For now, it's enough to know that Akhenaten claimed a unique, exclusive relationship with his divine father. He would not let that relationship be tainted by any other hand. Akhenaten worshipped the Aten in some unique ways, and some of his ideas were bold inventions, radical departures from what came before. However, many of the concepts that the king put forth were not really his own, rather, they were adaptations or remixes of concepts that had been percolating in the Egyptian cultural consciousness for quite some time. Granted, there were some definitely new ideas, like the pure, symbolic form of the Aten in art, and the very clear exclusivity of his relationship with the king. Other concepts, though, have some deeper roots, such as the idea of a god without peer status, one above all others, or the concept of the sun deity as a universal god, one who ruled over all nations. Akhenaten's religion was a curious mix of the innovative and the traditional. Some of his ideas would endure for a surprisingly long time, others not so much. On the next episode of the History of Egypt podcast, we're going to explore some of the precedents for the king's religious ideas. Certain texts from 18th dynasty tombs give us an idea of what came before Akhenaten's revolution where the seeds of this idea actually lay. Although the Aten was clearly special, and Akhenaten a radical innovator in some ways, he didn't create the whole cult out of thin air. The roots of Atenism go back some time, and in some ways quite deep. In episode 117, Adoring Ray, we will explore the roots of Akhenaten's strange beliefs. Now, it's time for chapter 3 in which I have a little treat. While putting this material together, I began collaborating with a musician, Ancient Lyric, to create some new tunes that can go into the podcast and future media. 
Along the way, I wound up putting together a complete version of the Great Hymn to Aten in English and in reconstructed Egyptian. I recorded this combination of translation and transliteration and put it together for your enjoyment. I'd like to share this with you now. After the break, I present a complete rendition of the Great Hymn. Each stanza is presented first in modern English and then in transliteration, ancient Egyptian adapted to modern letters. This way, you can get a sense of what the hymn sounded like and hopefully pick up some new words along the way. This was quite fun to make. If you enjoy it, do let me know. Perhaps I will do more of these in future. So, after the break, the great hymn to the Aten in English and ancient Egyptian. Enjoy! The Great Hymn to the Aten from the Western Wall of the Tomb of Ai at Southern Amarna in the city of Akhet Aten. Translation by William J. Murnane from his Texts from the Amarna Period in Egypt. Part 1. Beautifully you appear from the horizon of heaven, O living Aten who initiates life. For you are risen from the eastern horizon, and have filled every land with your beauty. For you are fair, great, dazzling, and high over every land, and your rays enclose the land to their limit of all you have made. You are Ray, having reached their limit and subdued them for your beloved son. Although you are far away, your rays are upon the earth. You are in their sight, but your movements are hidden. Chayek nefer emaket netpet, irten ank sha'a ank. Iwek webenti em aket, mechenek taneb em neferuek. Iwek anti werti chehenti kati hertep taneb. Sututek inechsen, tau er era iretnek neb. Iwek emra, inek er era sen, wafek sen en sa merek, iwek wati setutek her ta, tuwek emhersen nu shemuek. Part 2. But when you rest in the western horizon, and the land is in darkness in the manner of death, sleepers are in chambers, heads covered, and no eye can see its fellow. All of their property is robbed, although it is under their heads, and they do not realize it. Every lion is out of its den, all creeping things bite. Darkness gathers, the land is silent. The one who made them is set in his horizon. Chetepek em aket imentet, ta em kek em secher en mut, segeru em shesep, tebu chebes, en peter en iret senutes. Icha tu chetsen neb iu her tepsen in amsen. My neb per em rutief, jedfet neb pesech sen. Keku hau ta em seger, pa irsen hetep em aket f. Part 3. But the land grows bright when you are risen from the horizon. Shining in the Aten in the daytime, you push back the darkness and give forth your rays. The two lands are in a festival of light. Awake and standing on legs, for you have lifted them up. 
their limbs are cleansed and wearing clothes, their arms are in adoration at your appearing. The whole land they do their work. All flocks are content with their pasturage. Trees and grasses flourish. Birds are flowing from their nests, their wings adoring your car. Hedgeta webenti em aket, pesedti em irten em heru, rui ek keku, diek zetutek, tawi em heb, res acha heredui. Chesi en ek sen, wab chausen, shespu wenechu, awi sen em iau en chaaek. Ta ergeref, ir sen kat sen, Iat nebchetep her semusen, shenu semu her akakau. Apadu pau em shesu sen, denechu sen, em yau en kayak. Part 4. All small cattle prance upon their legs. All that fly up and alight, they live when you rise for them. Ships go downstream and upstream as well, every road being open at your appearance. Fish upon the river leap up in front of you, and your rays are within the great green. Aut neb her chebechen heredui, paiu kenenet neb, anksen weben eneksen, achau emked kenti emitet. Wat neb wen enchaek, remeu her iteru her tefet encherek, setutek emchen wajwer. Part 5. O you who brings into being the fetuses within women, who makes fluid in people, who gives life to the son in his mother's womb and calms him by stopping his tears, nurse in the womb who gives breath to animate all that he makes. When he goes down from the womb to breathe on the day of his birth, you open his mouth in form, you make his needs. Sekeper mayu emchemut. Ir mu em remech, sank sa em het en mut ef, segrexu em temet remief. Menat em het, diu chau er sank iretef neb, haef em het er tepet heru mesuef, wepuek eref herked, irek heretef. Part 6. When the chick is in the egg, speaking in the shell, you give him breath within and cause him to live. And when you have made his appointed time so that he may break himself out of the egg, he comes forth to speak at his appointed time and goes on his two legs when he emerges. Yucha em suchet medu em iner, diek enef chau em genues er sank ef. Irek enef de medi ef er sedes em suchet, peref em suchet em medet er de medi ef. Shemefher redwifi peref im es. Part 7. How manifold it is what you have made, although mysterious to the face of humanity. O soul God, without another beside him, you create the earth according to your wish, being alone. People, all large and small animals, all things which are on earth, which go on legs, which rise up and fly by means of their wings. Asha we siriek, you shetau emher, pa necherwa, nenki herkuef, kemaek ta en ibek yuek wati. 
ام رمچ من منت اوت نب نتی خیر تشمو خیر ردوی نتی ام اخ خیر پایو ام دنخو سن Part 8 The foreign countries of Charu and Cush and the land of Egypt You set every man in his place, you make their requirements, each one having his food and the reckoning of his lifetime. Their tongues differ in speech, their natures likewise. Their skins are distinct, for you have made foreigners to be distinct. Nesu wepu em medut, kedu sen em mitet, inemu sen setenu, setenek kasut. Part 9. You make the inundation from the underworld, and you bring it to the place you wish in order to cause the subjects to live. Inasmuch as you made them for yourself, their lord entirely, who is wearied with them, the lord of every land who rises for them, the orb of the daytime, whose awesomeness is great. As for all distant countries, you make their life. You have granted an inundation in heaven that it might come down for them in rain, and make torrents upon the mountains, like the great green ocean, to soak the fields in their locations. Irak hapi em duat, inek su ermerek. Er sankrekit, mi erek sen enek. Neb irisen er au imsen, pa neb en taneb. Weben en sen pa aten en heru aa shefet. Chaset neb wat irek ank sen. Dienek hapi empet haef en sen. Iref henu herju mi wajwer er techeb achut sen em demisen. Part 10. How functional are your plans, O Lord of Continuity? An inundation in heaven which is for the foreigners and for all foreign flocks which go on legs. And an inundation when it comes from the underworld for the tilled land, Egypt. While your rays nurse every field, when you rise they live and flourish for you. You make the seasons in order to develop all that you make, the growing season to cool them and the heat so that they might feel you. Semenek we see, sekeroek pa nebhech, chapi empet su en kasetiu, en aud kaset neb shemu redwi. Chapi ief em duat en tameri, setutekher mena sha neb, webenek anksen ruedsen enek. Irekteru er sekeper, iriek neb, peret er sekebsen, hech depef setu. Part 11. You have made the distant sky so that you may shine in it, to see what you make while you are far and shining in your form as the living Artin, risen, shining, distant, and near. You make millions of forms from yourself, soul one, cities, towns, fields, the road of the rivers. Every eye sees you in their entry. You are the Artin of day, master of your movement, of the existence of every form. You create, alone, what you have made. Irenek petwati erweben imes, erma iriek neb iuek wati webenti em chepruek em aten ank. Chati pesedti wati chenti, 
Irak, Hechu and Keperu imek wai. Niud demiu achet meten iteru, gemek tu iret neb er aki sen. Iuek em aten en heru her tep en shemenek. En wenen iret neb, kemaek her set er temek ma chau. Wa iret enek. Part 12. You are in my heart, and there is none who knows you, except for your son, Nefer Keperure, Wa Enre. For you make him aware of your plans and your strength. The land develops through your action, just as you made the people. When you have risen, they live, but when you set, they die. You are lifetime, in your very limbs, and one lives by means of you. Iuek em ibi nen wen ki rectu. Webher saek nefer keperura wa enra. Diek seshaef em sekeru ek em pechtiek. Keper ta her aek. Mi erek sen webenenek anksen hetepek metutsen netek acha er hauek anktu imek. Part 13. Until you set, all eyes are upon your beauty, but all work is put aside when you set on the western horizon. You who rise and make all creation grow for the king, as for everyone who hurries about on foot since you founded the land. You raise them up for your son, the one who issued from your limbs, the king of Upper and Lower Egypt, the one who lives on Ma'at, the lord of the two lands, Nefer Keperure Wa Enre, the son of Re, who lives on Ma'at, lord of crowns, Akhenaten, long in his lifetime. And the king's chief wife, his beloved, the lady of the two lands, Nefer Neferu Aten Nefertiti, may she live and be young forever continually. When iruher neferuek er hetepek, wach tu katneb hetepek her imeni, weben serued nesut. When em redneb jer senetchek ta, weches ek sen en sa ek per em chau ek, nesut ank em maat nebtawi nefer kebrura wa enra, sara ank em maat neb chau. Ak en aten, wer em acha ef. Chemet nesut weret meret ef nebet tawi, nefer neferu aten neferet iti, ank ti jet. The History of Egypt podcast would not be possible without the generous support of my backers on Patreon and those who have donated directly. I'd especially like to thank Michael and Linda, my priest-level patrons, and also thank you to David Brooks and Karim Rizkala, who were kind enough to donate to the show via PayPal. Folks, you are too generous, and my especial thanks to all patrons for their patience during my recent holiday. Now, the show is back and the next phase of Akhenaten can begin. If you are listening to the History of Egypt podcast, thank you for joining me. I am grateful to all of you. Take care, and I'll see you very soon. Mm-hmm.